You're listening to the IC Interviews. I'm Mary McDougall, and today I'm delighted to be joined by Professor John Kay, one of the UK's leading economists. John has held a host of the country's top academic think tank and advisory positions. He founded consultancy firm London Economics and has been a director of several investment trusts, including Scottish Mortgage, a position he stepped down from earlier this year. Today we're going to discuss points from a book he recently co-authored with Mervyn King called Radical Uncertainty and how these points apply to the state of the world today. We'll then chat about the investment industry more broadly. The book tackles how we should make decisions in an unknowable world. Kay and King caution against relying on computer models to forecast the likelihood of events because of inherent uncertainty. It was published in March and could hardly have been more timely. Coronavirus presents a perfect example of a radically uncertain event, as no computer model could conceivably have predicted the timing of the pandemic. Hi John, thanks for joining us. Hi Mary, good to be with you. I hope that provides a fair, very brief overview. I wondered if we could start with why you and Lord King decided to write this book 40 years after your previous collaboration. Well, it was nice to get together again. Uh, but it actually was the product, I think, of our joint experiences outside the academic world. Um, I, Mervyn, went, as you know, to the Bank of England and was at the Bank of England through the financial crisis. And it was obvious during the financial crisis, firstly, that the models which had been developed uh, to protect people against risk in the banking sector failed. And it was also clear that people didn't really have a very good understanding of what we describe as what was going on here, what had been happening in the lead to the, up to the crisis, or what was happening during the crisis. So that involved some rethinking. And I'd the experience, really, of um, teaching academic economics for 20 years, telling people about models of profit-maximizing firms and individual rational agents. And when I went out rather more into the real world, I realized that that didn't really describe what was happening at all. And with the economic background I had, I asked, so... If people weren't maximizing profits in business, what were they maximizing? And if individuals weren't maximizing their wealth or utility, what were they maximizing? And I came to realize that most people weren't maximizing anything at all. It wasn't possible to maximize things in an uncertain world. What you started to do was to find strategies, whether in business or your personal life, that were good enough. It's something that... uh, uh, great um, decision theorist Herbert Simon called satisfying, ficing. So it's an old Scottish word, as a matter of fact. Uh, It's finding strategies that are good enough, and that's what people did. So we were both interested in the question of how how do people really deal with an uncertain world, which can't be described by the kind of models that uh, uh, were being used in the banking system and are still being used quite widely. Yeah, that's interesting. You frequently refer to the failure of the bank's models um, in the global financial crisis in the book and set out how their approach to risk is what drove the crash. How secure do you think the banking system is now? Do you think lessons have been learned? Or? Uh, not very much. Uh, I mean, the models we're describing failed, but essentially similar models are still being used. Uh, banks are more capital than they, they used to. Uh, but um, The thing is, you don't know what is enough. 
And what happened in the years before the crisis is that the models, the regular demands for regulatory minima, essentially substituted for the experienced judgment of, of, of bankers themselves. And you can't actually do that. We just don't know enough about the world uh, to operate in that kind of way. Both Mervyn and I are people who are really committed to economic models. We've spent a lot of much of our lives building economic models. Uh, but actually, we don't think you can use them to predict the future. We can use them to illuminate problems, but not to give you answers to them. Yeah, but do you think that they can create them if you use them in the wrong way? Uh, they, can create, they can create problems and crises. Yes, of course they, they did. Yeah. And they go on doing so. Indeed, one of the interesting things is to see the models being used and misused in this pandemic. Once again, you can use a model of um, an epidemiological model. You can use that to ask the right questions to frame uh, the kind of policy issues, but you can't use them to predict. And the predictions have, not surprisingly, been terrible. Yeah, it's quite spooky in your book where you have a reference about how we must expect to be hit by a pandemic at some point. It was, um, rather. <laughs> we didn't know quite how quickly that would come true. <laughs> well, but what would you say more broadly about the UK's preparedness and handling of the, of the crisis? Well, it turns out to have been pretty poor, really. Um, firstly, there wasn't... Uh, effective preparedness for the pandemic. As you said right at the beginning, the pandemic is a good illustration of what we mean by radical uncertainty. Because we could say, and we did say, that an event of that kind was likely. It's something that was on the list of things that were going to happen one day. It was likely. But that doesn't mean, as you said, that you could have developed a model that says it will break out in Wuhan in December 2019. Um, so this was something that was going to happen sometime. We weren't prepared for it, either in terms of our hospital system, uh, in which we improvised responses fairly well, or in terms of the capacity of Public Health England in particular to deal with our identification and testing, which was really proved lamentable. And then policy has um, been characterised by... <coughs> Well, consistency is not a word you could apply to any part of the policy that's been adopted. 13 U-turns. <laughs> yes. um, but there has been a huge stimulus response, um, and our national debt is now enormous. What do you think the government should do next? There's been quite a lot of noise about tax announcements um, that, that might come. What's your view on what should happen? I'm a bit puzzled by that because what we need is to get the economy back to some sort of norm as quickly as possible. And I'm afraid that just means the government has to uh, run a deficit until things are operating much more normally. There's not a time to increase taxes. Taxes are going to have to go up in the long run to pay for this, uh, but it doesn't have to be in three, six months' time, and it shouldn't be in three, six months' time. Okay. Could, could a strategy be to issue very long-term debt at current low interest rates and gradually inflate the debt away? Um, it could be to issue very long-term debt at current low interest rates. Indeed, 
one of the bizarre things about the world of quantitative easing has been that although the government can issue long-term debt at ridiculously low rates, it's actually been buying it back rather than pumping more out. Or actually, bizarrely, it's been doing both. It's been both pumping more out in the hands of the debt office and buying it back in the hands of the Bank of England. I'm yeah. I find the policy a little puzzling. Uh, but if people will lend to you for 50 years at more or less nothing, I think you you take the money. You suggest in the book that models can be weighted to justify political projects. Um, I think HS2 might be an example of this. Yeah, indeed. Cl- climate change is arguably one of the biggest challenges we face today. Massive investment, which will radically change the balance of our economies, is underway based on projections of climate change, which run for decades. Do you think we've prepared the ground well enough for this? Well, I'm, I have the same scepticism about models of that kind that run for 50 years that I do have about other models that run for 50 years. Uh, once again, you can learn things. They can tell you the kind of things that might, these models can tell you the kinds of things that might happen. They certainly can't tell you the kinds of things that will happen. What you should do in the face of radical uncertainty, and we have to say this again and again, is you try to develop strategies that are robust and resilient. And what we really need to be doing in relation to climate change is giving ourselves options, which in my view is mostly about technology. It's about alternative fuel technologies. It's about improvements in transmission and storage, things that actually make it possible. Uh, to run our economies as they are now, but from non-carbon sources. I guess that's what the government's trying to do with heavy investment into greener technologies. I don't see that, actually, that building offshore wind farms of rather doubtful economic viability uh, in places that are really quite hard to get electricity from or quite expensive to get electricity from is not the kind of investment I have in mind. I think, especially since actually what Britain does is not going to make the slightest bit of difference to global warming. It's what happens in Asia and perhaps if Africa gets its act together in terms of economic growth in Africa. What we need to do is ensure that other parts of the world that are not as rich as we are are able to grow and consume a lot more energy, which they will need to do, uh, without that um, leading to very large increases in carbon emissions. And that tells us we don't have a uh, comparative advantage in, in Britain in reducing carbon emissions. What we do have is a comparative advantage in the kind of underlying science which will enable these problems to be solved. And that's, in my view, where the money ought to be going. That's a very good point. So do you think the government was was right to write into law that by 2050 we'd be, have zero? No, I, I have a very negative view of this kind of declaratory legislation. We've had, we've had several provisions of that kind back in uh, late days of the last Labour government. There were acts passed uh, imposing so-called legally binding targets for reducing the deficit. When these targets couldn't be met, the law was quietly repealed. There was another legally binding target for eliminating child poverty. 
that seems to have been quietly dropped when it became clear that that wasn't going to be achieved either. I think the, this kind of declaratory legislation is not a substitute for serious policy. And to repeat, the important thing is not how much carbon Britain emits in 2050. What matters is how much carbon China and India emit in 2050. In the book, you deplore thousands of pages of regulation in the financial world and call for simple, robust principles. Do you think Brexit could offer an opportunity here? Probably not, because um, this is an international issue. And given how much the financial services industry in the UK operates with foreign customers, um, we, um, we can't diverge very much from international norms whatever um, enthusiastic Brexiteers might think or want. But it's less a matter, I think, of simple principles than of actually of internalising the kind of values that regulation uh, might seek to impose. Uh, you know, we have a regulation that uh, firms must treat customers fairly, really. I think... <laughs> All business should treat customers fairly. Is it true as well that UK regulators had a very dominant hand in drafting European regulations anyway? Uh, that, that, that is true, yes. In, in this odd way, probably we may have less influence over the shape of regulation even in the UK outside the EU than we, we did within it. Tangentially related, but Brexit's something that's creeping up as a concern to everyone now. Um, and currency swings will probably have the largest impact for investors in the short term in the UK. Um, in an investment portfolio, do you think it makes sense to hedge currencies or or should should you take the view that real assets look through currencies? Um, I think my starting point would be that real assets look through currencies. I've asked this question in relation to one of the portfolios I've been involved with, which is my Oxford College which is the combination of a longer time horizon than any probably any other investor in the world, uh, together with expenditure that is essentially entirely in sterling. Uh, but the view we've taken, and I think this is the right view, is that we don't do any currency hedging at all. Or we're buying real assets. And on investments, there's a lot in the book about Warren Buffett, and it seems he's someone you admire. James Anderson, manager of Scottish Mortgage, has been quoted a few times saying that Buffett is perhaps the face of a doctrine that could be outdated. That's probably a mischaracterization of Buffett. I mean, Buffett's interest has been in finding well-managed companies uh, with what he calls moats, defensible market positions. And actually, that's not very different from the Scottish Mortgage approach, actually. Any, any investor is asking, or should be asking, what is the value of this stock? It's just value has come to have a particular meaning that says you can look through, you look through the, to the physical assets of the corporation and attach special significance to that. Now, if that's the interpretation of it, then it is an outdated because the, the value of corporations nowadays lies only to a, a very small extent in their physical assets. Indeed, essentially none at all. We were just looking a few days ago at the balance sheets of some of the biggest companies in the world now, like Apple and Amazon. 
And uh, basically, neither of these companies own anything at all in the conventional sense. If you, um, if you look at their balance sheets, uh, the dominant item in both cases is cash. If you look at the operating assets, uh, virtually none of Amazon's uh, belong to Amazon. They're all properties. Um, if you look at the inventories, they're negative because you've paid your Amazon bill on average before they've paid the supplier. There, there, there are no assets there. So in that sense, there is no value in Amazon. But to say there is no value in Amazon shares is a very foolish statement indeed. I'm not sure this is a question you can answer, but it's one I'd really like to get your opinion on, on this topic. How can how can Scottish Mortgage know, the managers of Scottish Mortgage, know that many of their holdings are not massively overpriced? You can't. You have to make a judgment as to whether these companies are capable of generating over the next five, ten years the kind of growth that would justify their their current ratings. And in a world of radical uncertainty, you can never be sure about these kind of things. Uh, the world really is radically uncertain. And there clearly will come a point at which all of these stocks are, in fact, overvalued. More than that, um, it's actually very rare for companies to have the kind of market positions that these companies have and to maintain them in the long run. So there will be always uh, be a moment at which you should sell if you'd... Um, live through the 20th century without having investments in General Electric and General Motors, you would have missed out an enormous amount of value creation. If you'd held General Motors, General Electric throughout, you would have done pretty badly. Yeah, There was a great piece you wrote in the FT a couple of weeks ago, um, saying that 25 years ago, you might have thought a portfolio containing General Electric and General Motors um, represented a conservative approach to investment and you would have been spectacularly wrong. Um, do you think we'll be saying the same about the FANG stocks in 25 years' time? Yes. I mean, anyone who thinks owning these FANG stocks is a conservative approach to investment is is being very foolish. But it's, the analogy doesn't quite hold because I was saying if you'd bought General Electric, General Motors... Marks and Spencer, ICI, in 1990, you'd have been buying companies that have been, well, were not just market leaders at the moment. They were market leaders. They'd been market leaders for decades. And uh, all of them turned out not to be 25 years later. Do, do you think there, there might be some people who think that these big technology, big technology companies that have such a huge market share and are so profitable maybe are one of the, one of the, safe uh, places to put to put money at the moment I, I don't think in this sense they're safe there's no such thing as a safe yeah. investment right in this sense and one has to keep saying to people well the, the way I often frame it is people in the financial world often confuse uh, managing risk with achieving certainty and you know the man who's going to be hanged tomorrow has certainty but not security. And actually people who are saving for their pensions by investing in long-term bonds at the moment are doing much the same thing. You get the certainty 
you will have a very low standard of living in retirement. That's not my idea of minimising risk. Looking at the investment industry and, and the costs, you've written for a long time about how the whole industry charges too much. Um, Scottish mortgage fees stand out as being very low. Many funds don't pass on the benefits of scale um, as they get bigger. Do you think this is a problem? Well, it's a problem. What, for can, a, be, what, can, be, what can be done about it? <laughs> what can be done about it is, is investors should be a bit more careful about where they place their funds. Yeah. Uh, but the, the trouble, as I've said when I've written about this, is that if a fund manager really was even a little bit better, it would be worth paying a, a, a higher fee to that manager. Uh, but you don't really have any way, you don't have easy ways, let's put it that way, of judging whether they are in fact a bit better. And uh, that's why well, I, I, I've used the analogies of both brain surgery and estate agents, where um, in neither case do are you very attra- should be you be very attractive by the proposition I'm I'm not very good but I'm cheaper, so price competition is not terribly effective in these markets. Your recent piece also said that there are far too many funds, um, but I guess when funds grow too big, it can be a problem as they become less agile and could run out of places to put their money. Um, do you have a view on what the optimal size for an investment trust could be investing in global equity markets? Not really. Uh, I mean, I think agility is probably an overrated uh, characteristic. Uh, you know, one of the things that you should be looking at to keep the, the, the fees and charges down, it's not just what the actual fees and charges are, it's what the turnover is, uh, because that probably has a larger effect in the long run and the amount you will actually the difference between what you will get and what the underlying investments are earning um, so that I would not be worried by the fact that uh, uh, some of the kind of positions that Scottish Mortgage has for example are in this sense pretty large I don't think that's that fund is too big for what it currently does on the other hand, if I'm if I'm running a portfolio of smallish VC investments, I can't have very many uh, and know what we're doing in relation to them. That means I can't be that large because the size of investment in the VC sector, or the size of individual investments in the VC sector, is by the nature of the activity not that large. Now there are fewer companies listing in the UK. Um, companies are reluctant to come to the public market, and I, I guess you can't really blame them for that um, with the heavy regulatory requirements. Do you think this is a problem for savers, and can anything be done about it? Um, no, I don't think it's a problem. In fact, I think it's probably a good thing you know, that I'm coming to the view that the public equity markets as we know them were essentially a, a 20th century phenomenon. What that does mean is that uh, in future people will have to access, investors will have to access early stage unlisted uh, investments through funds because unless they're very substantial, sophisticated investors, they, they're not going to be capable of doing it directly. Uh, but that seems to me just fine. 
do you think there should be when you said there are too many funds do you think there are enough funds in the in the private equity space um yes i mean the trouble is that private ac- private equity when it began was called venture capital and was that uh but then private equity got into the business of organizing buyouts of its existing businesses either parts of large companies or whole of large companies and worse a lot of it became then became um, massaging the earnings of these businesses for two or three years and flipping the companies back into some kind of public market i don't think we need more funds like that in fact i don't think we need any funds like that uh we've got quite a lot of uh venture capital uh oriented funds problem we do have is they're not terribly available to kind of private investors we're talking about for this podcast yeah and the rise of passive investing's been a big trend how could I mean, does does passive investing have a place in private markets uh, yes i think it does because the total market capitalization of stocks is is very large if we're talking about active markets uh, active management which is real active management which for me means actually knowing and understanding the companies in which you're investing uh, rather than flipping stocks at a fairly rapid rate uh, then uh, there's a li- there's a limited capacity to do that and i see nothing wrong and did many things right with the idea that a large part of the investable funds are held in in, in passive vehicles with uh, the active managers as it were keeping the quality of management up to what levels it ought to be you did a review of the government you did a review for the government um in 2012 on uk equity markets and long-term decision making it covers um quite a few of the points we've already made you concluded that short-termism is a problem in UK equity markets and that the principal causes are the decline of trust and the misalignment of incentives throughout the investment chain. Eight years on, how much progress have we made? Um, some. The problem which I confronted in that report goes back to uh, one of the observations we made earlier about treating customers fairly. It's much more about culture change than it is about introducing rafts of new regulations. And we have elements of culture change within the business community. I mean, people are now talking about ESG issues to an extent that almost bores me and probably you out of my mind. Uh, that, that, that's useful and getting to the right place. But actually, for me, ESG is not really about how many women do you have on the board or how vigorous are your expressions of concern about climate change. It's actually about do you run your business in a way that creates long-term value for your investors, your customers, your employees, and everyone associated with the business. And that's where we need to, we need to move to, to get away from managers' preoccupation uh, with the share price which we've actually encouraged by um, increasingly rewarding them rather generously with stock options. That's, that's an interesting point. Do you think the inflated level of share buybacks um, 
within companies has harmful imp implications for investment and productivity? I don't think it matters that much whether companies pay uh, dividends or turn money to shareholders through share buybacks, although it probably matters quite a lot to the private investors we're talking about today because they're not used to the idea that you can you can manage a portfolio for total return and realize what you want every year from that portfolio uh, by selling shares as well as by receiving the income from it. So, I, But I don't think share back, people using share buybacks instead of dividends is, is intrinsically harmful. And I suspect one of the effects of the crisis and the big dividends we've cut, cuts we've seen is that in the future we'll see more share buybacks relative to dividends, even than we've had in the last in the last decade. But I don't go along with the um, with the idea that companies are using share buybacks as an alternative to investing for the long term. Uh, they're not investing enough for the long term, but I think that's mainly because they have this too much of a preoccupation things that will enhance the current share price. Would you not only want your company to be buying back the shares if, if the shares were good value at, at that time? You know, com companies for me are about producing products, about giving employment, about producing useful goods and services. Uh, you, what, what, the way the question is framed is turning the cost, is turning the company into is an investor, a securities investor, in its own right. That's not what companies are for. Companies have been far too financially oriented in this sense over the last 20 or 30 years, and we need to move away from that, not towards it. And as an investor yourself, how much significance do you place to economic quarter, quarterly economic data and forecasts of GNP and, and other such metrics? Uh, none. Basically, um, that might be a response. <laughs> yeah, I once had a research assistant who had previously she'd had a a job doing in GDP forecasting for some uh, less developed countries and investment bank. And I realised after we had a discussion one day, I realised she didn't really know what GDP was. Because in a modern economics course, you don't do the rather boring course, which I had to do when I studied economics in Edinburgh, on um, uh, national income accounting and how these accounts are actually compiled. These kind of courses have been dropped from most, um, most economics degrees nowadays. Uh, but then I realized that in the job she was doing in an investment bank, it didn't matter what GDP actually was, what mattered was what the Office for National Statistics or other statistical agency would say GDP was, because that was the thing that made a difference to markets. And just as with a preoccupation with quarterly earnings on the part of companies, uh, it's not people really wanting to know what the earnings are, it's wanting to know what the earnings are relative to what companies said the earnings will be and what other people in the market think um, earnings will be. And similarly, GDP uh, numbers matter 
relative to what GDP forecasts by other investors are. It's all this kind of um, game that Keynes famously described as the beauty contest where people weren't selecting the most beautiful face, but the face which they thought other contestants would think was the most beautiful face. And then he points out you can go through multiple levels of that. You're looking for the uh, the face that other people will think, other people will think is the most beautiful of the faces. And we've gone a long way down that road, much further than, um, than we were at in Haynes' day, down that particular road of people piling levels of guesses on each other. And one final question, so I'm afraid we've run a little bit over time. Um, your book's massively learned and rich with examples. The bibliography runs to 39 pages. Have you read them all? Um, I wouldn't guarantee that. <laughs> uh, I think I or my research assistants have at any rate looked at them all. <laughs> I wouldn't go further than that. Well, that's great. Thank you so much for joining us. That was a really interesting conversation. Really appreciate your time. Good. Pleasure, Mary. Thanks. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.